From the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, this is Politically Georgia. I'm Bill Nygut. Today, in a surprise announcement, Senator Tim Scott drops out of the GOP race for president. When I go back to Iowa, it will not be as a presidential uh, candidate. I am suspending my campaign. How will other GOP candidates take advantage of Scott stepping down? Meanwhile, Senator Joe Manchin is raising alarm among fellow Democrats as he announced he won't seek re-election. In a visit to Athens on Friday, he remained mum on a possible third-party bid for the White House. I'm Tia Mitchell in Washington. There's a countdown in Congress with just five days to pass a continuing resolution to avoid a government shutdown. Republicans in the Georgia delegation are expressing mixed reaction for Speaker Mike Johnson's unique plan to keep the government running. All that and more as we're joined by political science experts Andre Gillespie and Charles Bullock. Follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you always know what's really going on with Georgia politics. Tia Mitchell. You're going to have another busy week in Washington as they move toward a funding bill to cut cut off the possibility of a government shutdown at the end of the week, yes? Yes, busy week, a lot of uncertainty. We know that House Speaker Mike Johnson has his two-step laddered approach to funding the government temporarily, Um, but Senate Democrats are looking for a more straightforward temporary funding measure. So we'll see if they can get any consensus. But I don't think there's an appetite for a shutdown, especially going into the holidays. So we expect it'll be worked out maybe by the end of the week or this weekend. But looking to see what happens. All right, Tia Mitchell. Eat well, get a lot of sleep and exercise as you get ready for this long week. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces, as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Tia, the U.S. House is absolutely determined not to let you get any rest at all. We're going to talk about it later in the show, but this is once again a deadline week for (laughs) the spending measure that the Republicans still can't get a handle on. Yeah, we're, you know, it's a lot of uncertainty this week. There are some options on the table, and I will say the general mood is that Congress and particularly the House under new Speaker Mike Johnson, the general mood is that there is no appetite for a shutdown in that it will be resolved by Friday, but we're not sure when or how. All right. We're going to get to that a little bit later, uh, Tia, but um, we're so happy that you are here this week to keep us up to speed on all of that. Um, we're also joined today by two of the leading experts on politics in Georgia, and for that matter, what happens across the country, Professor Andra Gillespie, who is the professor of politi- a professor of political science, director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and, and Difference at Emory University. Andra, 
What a pleasure to have you. And you're here in the studio with us. Thank you. Yes, thank you. It's good to be here. What are you teaching this semester and how's it going? I'm teaching African-American politics. So it's my standard survey course. I've been teaching it since I started there. And I love my students this semester. They're wonderful. I love to hear a teacher say how much she cares about her students. We're also joined by the Dean of Political Science Professors in Georgia, uh, Professor Charles Bullock of the University of Georgia. Uh, Chuck, you have been watching politics in Georgia and teaching at the university uh, since the 1960s. And so your historical knowledge, plus the fact that you are also one of the leading national experts on redistricting, which we'll also talk about a bit in the show, are especially welcome today. How are you doing? How's your cla- How are your classes going? Well, we're about to wrap it up, and I'm in, I'm in ter- term paper grading mode Ooh. right now. So, <laughs> but those these are good. I encourage my students to do original research, and they do. They go out and they do interviews, and so uh, I learn from the things they discover. Uh, Chuck, we should also say that um, your University of Georgia Bulldogs had another blowout game Saturday night. It's extraordinary to watch them play. Uh, do you go to those games? Uh, I did not go and sit in the rain and cold on Saturday. No, I'm too too old or, or, or whatever for that. All right. Well, we're awfully glad that you are here with us. Tia, let's get started. Um, last night, uh, Senator Tim Scott surprised apparently everyone, including his own campaign staff, by deciding that it was time for him to drop out of the uh, Republican race for president. Let's hear how he made that uh, known on Fox News, and then we'll talk about it. I think the voters uh, who are the most remarkable people on the planet have been really clear that they're telling me not now, Tim. I don't think they're saying, Trey, no, but I do think they're saying not now. And so I'm going to respect the voters and I'm going to hold on and keep working really hard and uh, look forward to another opportunity. So Tia, first Mike Pence, now Tim Scott. The field is winnowing down, but Donald Trump is still by far the front runner. Yeah, I am not surprised that Tim Scott is suspending his campaign because the the debate last week was kind of his last chance to break through. And we all know that didn't happen. We all know the most viral moment from the debate was him soft launching his girlfriend afterwards <laughs> by taking that picture. And um I will say to me, the most shocking part, and I'm sure we'll talk more about it, is how he chose to suspend his campaign. It was in a surprise appearance on Fox News or surprise announcement on Fox News. He didn't even tell his staff ahead of time. It almost makes it seem like it's almost a decision he made maybe at the spur of the moment. It just it was odd how he chose to do it in this way without even giving the people who a lot of them uprooted their lives, not even giving them the courtesy of hearing it from him first. That's really an interesting point. It did feel almost spontaneous. And he was on Fox with an old friend um, um, from Washington, Trey Gowdy. And so it's possible that he did kind of speak a little bit spontaneously or didn't. in in any case, he's out of the race. Uh, Chuck Bullock, um, we know that um, we had two candidates running from South Carolina, Nikki Haley and Tim Scott. Uh, Nikki Haley has certainly picked up some ground in the polling um, in the uh, last few months, especially in Iowa and New Hampshire. Uh, 
the question becomes, is there any lane now for Nikki Haley to continue building uh, momentum, especially let's look at it in a state in Georgia where she has some very strong supporters willing to put a lot of money into her campaign? Yeah, and the poll that we did here at UGA showed her doing well against Joe Biden in that hypothetical matchup. So as this field narrows, then you know I think she is the, going to be the primary beneficiary. I, I, you know, I don't know that uh, Ron DeSantis is on the verge of dropping out, but you know his numbers are not moving in the right direction. And so very early next year, she may be the last op- opposition to Donald Trump. And what that means, I think, is that if indeed he should get a conviction somewhere along the lines, because we see some of his support is soft on that. So if he gets convicted, then she might be the one positioned to to become the nominee. Andre, it's not as if Tim Scott was ever a real threat to either Nikki Haley or uh, to Ron DeSantis. Uh, Nevertheless, what do you think about the fact that it may give Nikki Haley a a, a new uh, burst of momentum? Well, I think it's important to realize that Tim Scott was trailing so far in the polls that any pickup is going to be relatively negligible. Yeah. Um, so we're not necessarily talking about that. What we are looking at is Nikki Haley's momentum and whether or not that continues. And most of us anticipated, I think, especially after last week's debate performance, that her momentum was likely going to continue. And I think the big question was, given the fact that Ron DeSantis actually had a pretty good debate night and better than the first two, whether or not there, he would we would actually see some type of upward momentum. And I don't know until I see new survey data to substantiate that, but I suspected that Haley was going to continue to perform well. And I think, you know, for Scott, Scott had his put all eggs in the Iowa basket mm-hmm. and that was not working out for him. If Nikki Haley was becoming ascendant in, in, in Iowa, then clearly the strategy wasn't going to work for him and it was all going to fall apart anyway. Um, in January, that leaves Chris Christie with the I've got everything in New Hampshire <laughs> strategy to see if that works for him, particularly to winnow out the field. So I think in many instances, I expect that Haley is going to continue on her upward trajectory with the ceiling of Donald Trump being the juggernaut that he is. And I want to wait to see how De- uh, DeSantis performs, whether or not he can gain any momentum, kind of reverse his downward trajectory. And I want to see what the staying power is of, of of Chris Christie, whether or not he really can hold on to this one state strategy to see if he can have a breakout moment there. Um, so, Tia, I want to talk about Tim Scott just for a couple more minutes uh, in terms of him as a person who I'm sure you've watched in the U.S. Senate, um, even though he's certainly not your uh, main focus, you're focused on the Georgia delegation. He's extremely well-liked. He's mild-mannered. He's always been a very positive spirit. He talked about throughout the campaign comedy uh, about uh, respect uh, within politics, and it didn't get him very far. Um, but I also wonder if, in fact, it isn't just that people – it's being billed today as we don't want that kind of positive candidate uh, in the race. There may be some truth to that, but Tia, watching Tim Scott in the debates, it wasn't just that he was trying to be respectful. Uh, it was also that he seemed so terribly passive. Right. It didn't, and it kind of, kind of came across that he didn't have a lot to say, quite frankly. It's one thing to say, I'm not throwing flames and I'm not being combative and I'm going to treat everyone with respect. 
that's fine. Um, but you still should have a message and a vision and you, sh- that message and vision should differentiate you from the field. And I don't think he accomplished that. I quite frankly, even when he announced his campaign, I personally never saw it for him. I felt that the announcement was low energy. I think I said it on this here show when we recorded it the day after. I just was never as impressed with his campaign launch as other people. I think a lot of people put their hopes and dreams in Tim Scott, the people who want to see the party turn away from Trump, the people who would like to see a person of color, a black man with an amazing story become the leader of their party. I think they, and and quite frankly, he seems to be very well liked. He seems to be a really nice person. And so I think there are a lot of Republicans with money who were hoping Tim Scott would catch on and someone that they really could believe in for president. And it just never happened. Andra? So there were times when he actually did try to lean into where the party is right now. And so there were some pugilistic moments. Uh, There were some policy stances that he took that I actually thought were out of character. Um, I was at a conference last week where somebody pointed out that during the UAW strike, you know, he was, you know, kind of saber rattling a little bit and saying, you know, everybody should be fired in the same way that the air traffic controllers were fired um, in 1980. And, and on the stage in, in in Miami last week, he did mention that kind of in response to um, on campus protests, you know, some of which are pro Hamas, that schools should lose money and that international students should be deported if they're pro Hamas. And so that was news to me that it was uh, international students who were the ones organizing for the pro-Palestinian cause. Um, And so like it sounded really xenophobic to me. And then it also sounded like it was actually pouring gasoline on the fire as opposed to diffusing the situation. And I'm used to seeing Scott as being the one who's going to try to be the bridge builder and, and, and to try to be the peacemaker. But that's clearly not where he's going. And even when he talks about race, Right. He's talking about race, usually toward a white audience, but he's invoking the attacks um, against him when blacks actually challenge him on some of the stances that he takes. And even his attempt at an Obama-esque speech in Chicago a couple weeks ago, which nobody watched, um, you know, he was basically trying to make these claims to sort of come out swinging and it just didn't fit him. And I think that that's part of the problem that he's very well liked. But I think it becomes a question of, has he demonstrated enough leadership chops to be taken seriously? If Republicans take over the Senate, he's certainly in line for a committee chairmanship. I actually wonder if his advisors are thinking about other next acts, because a gubernatorial run might serve him well if ultimately his goal is the White House so that he can demonstrate some executive experience. Oh, fascinating. All right, Chuck Bullock, uh, final word on where you think this, Tim Scott, to the extent you want to talk about him, and I guess you would uh, probably confirm uh, the thinking that Andra shared with us, which is that this doesn't shake up the race much at all right now. Donald Trump still firing away the leader. Tim Scott makes no real impact on that. Yeah, this is a bit different, though, than 2016, <laughs> where the anti-Trump forces never coalesced. And I think they're well on the way to coalescing. Now, Chris Christie is, is you know, he's, he's not serious in the sense that I don't see any path for him He's there on the stage. He he criticizes Trump, which helps with the anti-Trump rant set of the Republican Party. And he brings forth some things that, uh, that Nikki Haley wouldn't have to say, but she would benefit from, from those people who say, well, yeah, it reminds me of something I don't like about Trump. And if she's the last person standing, then she is able to consolidate that. 
But I think really what's critical, the only thing that will really seem to shake this up based upon the polling is if indeed Trump gets indicted, not just indicted, but convicted, then there is a share of the people who right now would vote for Trump who just can't go that far. They do not want to see a convicted felon in the White House. The problem for her is that these trials are not moving that quickly. And so they may come to a head and he may be convicted. But by that point, he may have all the pieces in place to claim the nomination. All right. So, Tia, one last point uh, based on what Professor Bullock just said. Our AJC poll showed exactly uh, what he's talking about, which is that uh, even Republicans who, by big majority, support Donald Trump here in Georgia for the GOP nomination, we also asked them whether they thought they could support a convicted Donald Trump. And there was a huge drop off at that moment. Yeah. And to me, I don't know how much to read into that because thus far, the Republican base, we know that Donald Trump's support has remained pretty solid despite the indictments. Um, Quite frankly, it's firmed up in light of the indictments. And so I don't know how much I don't know that if the reality of a conviction happens to Donald Trump, whether that would cause him to lose support or whether those people who are all in for Trump as of now would not believe, just as the, they believe the indictments are politically motivated and unfair, would they not believe the convictions are politically motivated and unfair and that it would not serve to firm up his support with a lot of Republican voters? So I don't know. I mean, I, I, I see what the poll says in that if Trump were to move from someone under indictment to someone who has been convicted, that might cause him to lose support. But I just don't know if the reality in the long run, should it happen, will match up with what the polling is telling us. All right, let's do this. Let's move and transition over to the Democratic uh, side of uh, the race. Um, The big news uh, at the end of last week, Andrew Gillespie, was Joe Manchin, senator from West Virginia, saying he would not seek re-election. And within hours of making that announcement, he was at the University of Georgia for a um, major event um, that honors uh, Johnny Isaacson and um, is an effort to raise money for uh, the Parkinson's disease uh, foundation that people started in his in his honor. So first, Andra, it seems clear that this is a headache for Democrats because it opens a seat in West Virginia that is almost certain to go to a Republican. Yes. Yes. And that might have been the case even if Joe Manchin were on the Mm -hmm. ticket. So, you know, when politicians bow out, sometimes in the case of Johnny Isaacson, it is for legitimate other reasons. And those will be pretty obvious to folks. But usually when people are pretty cagey about it, sometimes the calculus is I'm going to lose this election. So I'm going to bow out gracefully now before it gets bad. And Jim Justice was going to give him a run for his money and could arguably be even Joe Manchin in the state. So, Joe Manchin was the last Democrat standing in West Virginia. He was the only Democrat who could possibly win, but the headwinds were against him. So I think the question is now, okay, so is he skirting with this idea of a no labels ticket run? And, you know, there, you know, the people are talking about the maneuverings. If there's a unity ticket, who's on top, the Democrat or the Republican Mm -hmm. mansion, you know, reportedly would only consider being a presidential candidate, not a vice presidential candidate. 
there are lots of factors and issues at play. First of all, they're just the history of third parties and how they fare mm-hmm. um, in an electoral contest. And if you care about the party from which you came, right, or, you know, would you be willing to play spoiler in that election and to what end? And I don't think No Labels has actually clearly articulated who they are. The history of third parties, just kind of nationally speaking, is because of, of the way we draw uh, districts in our election system, we tend to have two parties. Third parties either come into play spoiler or they're coming in to basically like rebuild when another party goes away. So the Republican Party replacing the Whigs would be an example of that. No labels doesn't really articulate a serious beef with either of the two parties from which they could extract concessions by playing spoiler in a presidential election, nor do they look like they're actually very well positioned to take over from either the Republican or the Democratic parties because they've just become so divided that they are unstable at this point. And for that, this seems like not the best advised idea. So, uh, Chuck, of course, the reason that uh, Andra mentions no labels is that there are questions among Democrats if, in fact, Joe Manchin wants to run as the no labels candidate for president. Uh, Greg Bluestein uh, talked to him out at the University of Georgia last Friday. And among other things, here's what Manchin said he was really all about. Quote, I'm so concerned about our country. My quest is how do we save the nation, whether it's me or anybody else? How do we get involved? Don't get pushed too far left or too far right. Don't let hate infiltrate. Sounds like a campaign slogan to me. But then he goes on and he says, um, the change isn't going to happen in Washington. The change is going to happen in states like Georgia, um, where people start learning that um, moderation and uh, and uh, uh, compromise are, in fact, positives, not negatives. Yeah, the event that brought Joe Manchin to Athens was the Johnny Isaacson Symposium on Political Civility, something yeah. we don't hear much about these days. And so he was on stage along with Missouri's former Senator Roy Blunt. They had a very you know, friendly discussion of you know, what could be done, what should be done. Um, and Manchin did not talk at all about you know potentially running for president during the course of that. What I'm hearing, again, I'm sure that Tia being in D.C. has much better rumors than, than I pick up in Athens, but that, you know, one of the things which he is weighing, which Manchin is weighing, is who on the Republican side would run with him because he doesn't want to just run as part of a Democratic ticket, light. And uh, so we hear rumors that he's talking to Mitt Romney, who is now he's not running for the Senate also, and has just published a book which is getting a lot of coverage in which he's quite critical of Donald Trump and a number of his colleagues there. So that could be one of the things, you know, can Manchin find someone to run with? And then the other rumor is that, uh, you know, if either party were to choose someone other than the front runner right now, that might also dissuade his interest in running. It's the kind of this pushback we see everywhere in every poll that most Americans do not want to see another election in which it's Joe Biden versus uh, Donald Trump. Finally, if he does decide to run on however ticket he might, Odds of Georgia voters being able to vote for him are very slim because it is so hard to get on the Georgia ballot as a third, fourth, fifth party. So he might run, but uh, it might have no impact at all What here in Georgia, a swing state. Tia, that's a really important uh, point to make in all this. Um, and in fact, time is running out in, in the meantime in a number of states for uh, candidates uh, to get who are not already on ballots to get on ballots. But also, by the way, uh, if it's a Mitt Romney and Joe Manchin uh, ticket, hypothetically, 
I'd say there's going to be some sharp elbows between the two of them as to who's at the top of that ticket. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that I think the folks behind the no labels movement um, or the folks who are open to the no labels movement, their ideal ticket is a Romney Mansion ticket. Um, and no labels is working hard to get ballot access. They um, are adding states and and working hard to get on as many states as they can. Um, that doesn't mean that they'll be able to get on enough states to really make a difference, but they could be on enough states to be a spoiler, you know, in some swing states, which we know could cost either the Republican Party or the Democratic Party crucial electoral college uh votes that they may need. So um but Romney I to me it seems like Manchin has talked about being more open than Romney. Um and quite frankly, it seems that Romney is more worried than Manchin about what this third party ticket could do to possibly make it easier for Trump to get back into office. Um, and, and that's all part of the calculus that particularly the no labels um, folks or the folks who are paying a lot of attention to the no labels campaign or initiative are worried about is whether this third party ticket would basically make it easier for Trump to get back in the White House. So Tia Mitchell gets the last word for this segment. For me, the bottom line on uh, these two big stories that broke uh, late last week over the weekend is that, number one, uh, uh, certainly Tim Scott's dropping out doesn't change the dynamic of the Republican race for president here in Georgia. And even if a Joe Manchin were to try to get into the presidential race, uh, he would have a hard time getting on the Georgia ballot. Um, let's take a break right now. But when we come back, Tia Mitchell, we're going to look to you for an update on whether Republicans in the House really are on a path to approving a continuing resolution before Friday, which is the last day to avoid a government shutdown. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song. A celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-Hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Welcome back to Politically Georgia. You may have noticed that what we used to refer to as the jolt now has a new name, but we still do have a jolt of Georgia political news as you read it. Scoops and exclusives from Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Adam Van Brimmer. So a heads up to new and future subscribers. We're rebranding our subscriber-only morning politics must-read from the jolt to Politically Georgia. There's no better time to subscribe at AJC.com slash newsletters. Thanks for being here as we look forward to a big election year in 2024. All right, Tia, you're up. Uh, so the new speaker, Mike Johnson, has this really either what some people think is an imaginative, creative, positive plan or kind of a crazy plan to do a two-tiered continuing resolution to try to get enough votes 
uh, to pass a first stage of the resolution by the end of this week. Our Georgia GOP representatives have had different different reactions to it. Start us off on this, please. Yeah, so I guess we'll start here with what is Speaker Johnson trying to do? Well, essentially, he's doing kind of the same thing Kevin McCarthy did in September, which is proposed temporary funding to keep the government open and avoiding a shutdown. Um, current funding levels, which were put in place under um, the last Congress when Democrats were in control, which is why a lot of conservatives don't like continuing resolutions. The only slight difference is what Johnson is calling a laddered approach. That's to um, appease some of the conservatives. And so some of the funding bills would be temporarily extended until December. And then the rest would be temporarily funded through January. So basically, it would set two new different government funding shutdowns, kicking the can down the road. The question is, will Democrats go along? Is For them, it's kind of not a bad deal because it just keeps everything status quo. Um, but the White House doesn't like this two-pronged approach. They think Johnson is playing games. Um and then again, there are some conservatives like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who, because Johnson is keeping funding flat and is not either adding things that conservatives want or taking away funding, you know, some across the board cuts to make conservatives happy. Marjorie Taylor Greene is among the far right members who say they're not going to support it. And we know Johnson has a thin majority. He can't lose much support. And Johnson still has that motion to vacate. So he can't make any Republicans too mad at him or they can call for his removal as speaker. Chuck Bullock, uh, uh, Congressman Buddy Carter was on the show on Friday. Uh, he said that he was kind of intrigued by this two-step uh, approach. He didn't say he supported it at this point, but he also said something else that I asked him to go into a little bit. He said it wouldn't be the worst thing that could happen if the government shuts down. And I find that surprising. But on the other hand, we know there are certainly Republicans even further to the right than Buddy Carter who share that sentiment. That's exactly right. Yeah, I did a program with him and Lucy McBath uh, back in mid-October, mid and he said the same thing there. So this is not something new to him, this uh, lack of great concern. And so I think from his perspective that uh, Closing on the government is not ideal, but he sees other he has other concerns. One of which is the size of the deficit, and uh, so if this closing down the government would uh, advance that goal of controlling the deficit somehow, I, I think he would go along with that. And he's thought of as being kind of a moderate within the Republican Party, certainly well to the left of Marjorie Taylor Greene and probably Andrew Clyde and uh, most of the uh, Freedom Republicans. So. Yeah, this is a real time of testing for the, the new speaker, and you know, it's one of those old kind of curses. May your wishes come true. Yeah, you get to be speaker, but hey, look what's in your lap now. How are you going to deal with this? <laughs> Andra? So uh, Representative Carter might be thinking about uh, savings to the deficit, which I don't think materialize usually uh, with respect to, to shutdowns. And then there may be something that he's ignoring, which is the optics of having a shutdown right before mm -hmm. the holiday season. Right. People are not going to forget this. Government employee, employees in particular are not going to forget this. And people who work in adjacent industries, you know, the people who run the dry cleaners and the sandwich shops and all of those places would 
have hardships as a result of, of, of having a government shutdown, particularly if it lasted for a certain length of time. I think there's also a risk of doing a government shutdown within a, a calendar year of an election. Um, you know, when they happen longer than that, when they happen like a year or two before an election, people don't always remember what's going to happen. But this is something that's just writing Democrats mm-hmm. ads for them. And it just creates the specter of dysfunction that may be being buffered by um by gerrymandering so that people are in safe districts and that's why they feel comfortable saying and doing some of these things. But knowing that Republicans have razor thin majorities, I'll bet you that the NRCC chair is not thinking that this is actually an optimal strategy. And so um, I think, you know, T is reporting at the top of the show that suggests that there really isn't much of an appetite to shut the government down is probably what's going to prevail here. Yeah, Tia, I'm glad that Andra said that because that's exactly what I wanted to ask you about. You did say at the start of the show that you have some optimism that they really are going to uh, uh, be able to pass a continuing resolution before the end of the week. Yeah, or if not by the end of the week, before any real pain, there just doesn't seem to be much of an appetite on either side of the aisle for a shutdown. Um, The Republican Party, you know, came out of all the chaos from the last shutdown threat that immediately led to Speaker McCarthy's ouster and all that drama. They're, they kind of are in a healing mode, but also in a mode of not bringing more embarrassment to the party because they had three straight weeks of that. And so I just don't think they're eager to, again, cause another national embarrassment by being blamed for a shutdown. Um, and there's also Speaker Johnson's in a bit of a honeymoon period. They, they're they still trying to work with him. Um, but that being said, it's unclear if his two-pronged plan, this laddered CR, will work. Now, the Senate is working on a backup plan, which is what we would call a clean CR, which is just Um, pass it on. Another thing I want to say that is um, making Johnson's laddered CR attractive even to Democrats is it also includes language to extend the farm bill for a year. Mm. The farm bill technically expired, but most of the programs would expire December 31st. And we know we're talking about food stamps. We're talking about subsidies for the agriculture industry. Um, the farm bill has a lot and Republicans would like to cut down some of the safety nets like the food stamp program, which is why it's been a hard thing to get the renewal on the books. So this, again, keeps the status quo in place for a full another year, which, again, Republicans avoid a fight. Democrats are able to keep the status quo. So the fact that the farm bill language is also now part of avoiding a government shutdown makes it even more possible that it could receive bipartisan support. Chuck, we should say that there are Democrats in the Georgia delegation who are especially concerned about the farm bill, one of them being um, Senator Raphael Warnock, who has often been very outspoken about supporting farmers, certainly in Georgia and across the country, uh, uh, and uh, Congressman David Scott, who has a key role in on the ag? Is he is he still the chair of the, uh, uh, the uh, minority uh, uh, leader of the agriculture committee? I believe so. There are Georgia Democrats who would have some stake in seeing an extension of the farm bill for another year. Well, Sanford Bishop also who represents a oh, very of course. District down southwest of course. Georgia. Of course, yeah. But what we're seeing here, and it's 
kind of crazy is government by by playing chicken you know whether it's the uh, crs extending the budget uh, or raising the debt ceiling you know everything goes to the absolute last minute and then yeah i think t is probably right the last minute they they do something but it's it's a crazy way to govern and it's not it was supposed to have been taken care of 45 years ago or so when they had the uh, the major budget act back in 1974 and it yeah. hasn't worked out at all. Andre, before we close out this subject, we, we say it virtually every time we've come to the brink of a shutdown lately. Um, and that is if, if there's one job that Congress has above all others, and perhaps the only thing they really have to do, it's to pass a budget. And while people like a Buddy Carter can say, well, we'll shut the government down because the debt is too high, I get, I understand, I do understand the reasoning behind that to some extent. But their job is to pass a budget. And the chaos has uh, made that, that act virtually impossible. You know, well, polarization has, has kind of gotten us to the point where people can't uh, work with each other. Um, and people are actually strategizing, if I make a decision, if I compromise with you, how is this going to affect my and my party's electoral chances back home? And and that's what's paramount here. Um, but voters are responsible for this. If you keep on electing mm -hmm. obstructionists and bomb throwers, right, we end up in this particular type of situation. Um, and, you know, I think there's also a lesson here for, for Mike Johnson. Um, you know, it's really easy when you're sitting sort of in the back pew to kind of heckle. Um, but now that you're in charge, you actually found out that it's harder than you thought. Um, and so I think we're going to see his medal. His learning curve was always steep, but this is going to be a baptism by fire for him. And we'll see how he comes out of it. Um, and then we'll also see uh, whether or not it actually made sense to put a relative novice in a key leadership position such as this. Like There is something to be said for the institutional memory and experience of people like Kevin McCarthy and Nancy Pelosi who have been doing this for decades. That's a really good point. Um, and Bill, one other thing here. Mike Johnson was one of the 90 Republicans who voted against the CR we're operating under now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really an excellent point. Thank you. Tia, before we take a, a, a break, um, I want to talk for a minute about Marjorie Taylor Greene in terms of all this. You already pointed out that she is opposed to the continuing resolution as it has now been laid out. And she did so in all caps in <laughs> her social media posting. Uh, she doesn't like... Uh, uh, the fact there's no money for the border, as uh, one example, she does not want to support uh, uh, and some of the other measures that are in the bill. But here's what I find I want to ask you about in terms of that. It feels like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who until very recently, until the ouster of Kevin McCarthy, her opinion on matters like this carried some weight with the right wing of her GOP conference. But she has really, since McCarthy has uh, uh, been ousted, she's lost some of that clout. Is that a fair thing to say? I mean, I think that what we noticed at the beginning of the year was that because Marjorie Taylor Greene had a relationship with Speaker McCarthy, um, that benefited both of them. So it gave Speaker McCarthy, she was willing to go to bat for him as a far right member splitting sometimes with other Freedom Caucus members like your Matt Gates's to say, no, I'm going to back Speaker McCarthy up. And she justified it and said, this is why. Well, 
now that speaker and it and it benefited her. She got some plum committee assignments. She was able to kind of it more legitimized her as a true power power player in Congress and not just, you know, uh, an ineffective lawmaker who didn't really have any power. Now that McCarthy's no longer speaker, she loses that connection to the inside. She is no longer seen as someone who is in with the leadership. But also as a result, she no longer feels obligated to support leadership. She's um, where in some ways she stood down um, in ways that kind of, quite frankly, surprised and angered some of her fellow hardliners, if you will. Um, But she did it in the spirit of being pragmatic and supporting Speaker McCarthy. Well, she's not doing that anymore. And so um, she's become a little bit of a problem for Speaker Johnson. She's gone back to being a little bit more combative, a little less friendly towards her other House Republicans. The question is, in the long run, will that hurt Green more than it hurts a Speaker Johnson, you know? Um, and I say that because she's now going after her Republican colleagues when they don't um, vote the way she thinks they should. And we know she has a lot of reach on social media. Um, and they don't like that. It's creating conflict. All right. Uh, thank you for that, uh, Tia. We do have to get, by the way, before we take the break, we should point out that uh, this new spending measure includes no new money for either Ukraine or Israel. We'll see if that changes, but certainly that's going to create uh, some uh, controversy, especially over on the Senate side. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Welcome back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Bill Nygut. No media organization in Atlanta swarms politics like the AJC. We produce this podcast and the Politically Georgia newsletter, which we used to call the Jolt, And now we have the new Politically Georgia PM newsletter. Make it your afternoon appointment to get caught up with what's going on while you've been at work. You can get it in your inbox for free every weekday afternoon. Just go to AJC.com slash Politically Georgia newsletter. That's all one word spelled out. AJC.com slash Politically Georgia newsletter. Chuck Bullock, I've got to turn to you first on this because you are the acknowledged expert on redistricting and on gerrymandering. Uh, So I'll start with you. Uh, At the end of last week, yet another state, this time Louisiana, uh, got a federal order that they redraw their maps because they underrepresent black voting strength in the state. Um, We have got Georgia is in the same situation right now, obviously, where uh, there's a special session that will begin at the end of this month Uh, Judge Steve Jones here has ordered the legislature here to pass new maps by, I think, December 8th is his deadline so that they can be used in the 2024 election cycle. So let me start out with this question for you, uh, 
if I may, Chuck. There are redistricting orders in a number of states, and the conventional wisdom among some is that this gives Democrats a significant opportunity to take control of the U.S. House. Do you think that's, in fact, uh, quite likely? Well, if everything remained constant, yes, and you draw these new majority black districts, they're going to almost certainly elect Democrats. And we've got uh, South Carolina kind of under the gun on this and Florida and Texas and other states that could be brought into it. Uh, offsetting that, though, is what's happened up in North Carolina, where there it's their state Supreme Court has thrown out a map that resulted in a 7-7, seven, seven, seven Democrats, seven Republicans. And the new map that's come out there looks like it's at least 10 Republicans, maybe even 11 Republicans. So that could go a long way to offsetting single gains in other states. But yes, this does, these, these decisions overall, probably, if every single state that we're talking about here has to redraw its maps, Democrats will come out ahead. They'll also probably make up some seats in New York, which is going to also redraw its districts there. So yes, there's going to be an ultimate gain for, for Democrats on this. And so if everything else were to remain constant, then you could wipe out those five Republican seat gain. And indeed, if we were to go back and look at what might have happened had Democrats had more influence in 2021, there might not even be a Republican majority now in the House. It might be, again, a very, very narrow Democratic one. Chuck, um, if I could ask you one more quick question. In an interview with uh, Mark Nisi from the AJC uh, about all of this, uh, you said this about the Georgia legislature, quote, they did operate with some more restraint than what Republicans did in Texas and Florida. And I assume you'd include Alabama in that mix as well. How do you see the Georgia legislature acted with more restraint? Yeah, well, they didn't do away with any of the existing black districts. They did do away with a kind of a, a district that had a, a black congresswoman, but that was not a majority black district when they redrew the sixth district to to weaken the, the Democratic strength there. Where in uh, down in Florida, they wiped out a district, the Republicans wiped out a district that had been electing an African-American since 1992, and this was a North Florida district. Uh, in Texas, uh, although all the growth in that state, like in Georgia, I'm talking about the population growth from 19 from 2010 to 2020 came from minorities. It was not white people who are getting more populous, but those. Mm -hmm. And again, in Texas, you know, that legislature did not draw any additional Hispanic or black districts. Andra? So, I mean, I think uh, what, what Chuck's talking about here is uh, with respect to thinking about what disparate impacts could be. Um, and so the Justice Department, this current Justice Department and the law allow you to take into account disparate impacts. And so if you see something like in Texas where it's the minority population that's growing, but you don't see minority representation increasing, that puts the burden of the proof on the uh, burden of proof on the state to prove that they're not doing something that is actually going to functionally disenfranchise or dilute the power of the vote of people of color. Um, and so what made Georgia very interesting was in redrawing the lines to crack some black people out of the 11th and put them in the 14th, mm -hmm. um, and then to put people of color in the 6th and move them into the 7th, which is uh, a majority-minority district, even though there isn't one group. It was a question of, okay, so are you going to see this as disenfranchising when the district is still just, you know, it's not majority black, it's not majority Latino, it's not majority Asian, it's majority people of color. And what the court has said is that they actually do view this this move for people from the sixth to the seventh in particular as this idea of kind of cracking and packing 
which is, you know, which civil rights advocates would argue is, is very suspect. Tia, um, a couple things that I'd throw to you on uh, this. One of them is that Governor Kemp immediately, the same day that uh, federal Judge Jones issued his uh, ruling saying that the state needs to uh, redraw its maps for more uh, equal representation for black voters, he immediately called a special session for November 28th. Um, we also have the Speaker of the Georgia House on the show saying to us, I think we're going to end up with maps that the federal court will be happy with, all of which uh, does not negate the fact that Republicans will undoubtedly appeal Judge Jones' decision. Yeah, I think Republicans and I I give Republicans in Georgia some credit um, that at least they are not going to at least they are saying, I'm going to go ahead, call the special session, do what the courts ask. Yes, I don't agree. Yes, I'm hoping the courts overturn it on appeal, but we're going to still move forward on the ask in the meantime, which like, let's compare it to, you know, city of Atlanta in the cop city signatures. You know what I mean? Where the city of Atlanta could have said, you know what? We don't agree, but we're going to go ahead and process these signatures just in case the court agrees with the other side and then we'll be in place. But the city of Atlanta says, nope, the court hasn't made us collect these signatures. So we're just going to put them in a box and wait for the court to tell us what to do. And I know it's not apples and apples, but you get my point. And so I also think, quite frankly, Republicans in Georgia see the writing on the wall, which is what the courts have told Louisiana, what the courts have told Alabama. Um, and so I don't know if Georgia, yes, they're going to try for a different outcome, but all the precedent is looking like the outcome will be you got to pick new maps. You got to draw new maps. So it's like, why belabor the point? Okay, Andra, I want to ask you to respond to a quote again from Mark Nisi's uh, article. He he talked to Adam Kincaid, who's the executive director for the National Republican Redistricting Trust, which is an organization that supports GOP redistricting efforts. And here's what Kincaid said. Georgia's modern electoral results are full of examples of minority candidates being elected with significant support from more than just voters of the same race. That's strong evidence that racially polarized voting no longer exists in Georgia. Respond to that. Uh, well, no, that's not true. I mean, you need a multiracial coalition <laughs> to get elected if you're a Democrat in Georgia. Blacks make up a little more than half of, of, of the state's Democratic voters. Uh, but numerically speaking, that's only 30 percent of the electorate mm. in total. So even if you got all black voters, you still need other people. That's not what this is about. Um, but it's the idea of taking, you know, black voters into a district and putting them in such an overwhelmingly Republican district, as happened in South Cobb, that they don't have any chance of actually being influential on their congresswoman now um, or moving them out of one district into another so that you make the other district more Republican. So there's still a really high correlation between race and party um, in, and, and, and voting in particular in Georgia, right? That doesn't negate the, the need to create a multiracial electoral coalition. Uh, but Chuck, you can imagine that what Adam Kincaid said could be part of a basis for an appeal by Republicans, uh, Judge Jones ruling. Yeah. But what happens, what goes into the decision that Judge Jones reached, the kind of evidence that was put on by the plaintiffs is to go through and look at past election results, look within an area which they say this could have been or could be a majority black district. 
what happened in it in recent elections and what they were able to show significantly for, for the judge was that had this been a majority black district, it would have elected someone different than who won in that district. Mm-hmm. And so that gets to what are called prongs two and three of the Jingles decision, which uh, is absolutely essential that plaintiffs have to prove that, which they did successfully and have gotten this court order. But there will now be new majority black districts in our congressional state senate and state house maps. Tia, meanwhile, uh, to finish off this <laughs> conversation, uh, we now have a, uh, a a candidate, a Republican, who wants to uh, challenge Sanford Bishop down in the second district. Before the show, you pointed out to me that he has very little money in his pocket. He was uh, one of those uh, found guilty of, a, I think, in his case, a misdemeanor for being in the Capitol on January 6th. But the only reason to bring it up is Sanford Bishop in the second district certainly could be uh, uh, vulnerable to a strong Republican challenge. Yeah, and I think that, quite frankly, it's very early. It's one thing to file your paperwork so you can raise money. That's what this um, candidate, Chuck Hand, has done. He was convicted of breaching the Capitol on January 6th. He's one of three Republicans who filed that paperwork, but that's a long cry from actually qualifying for the race. And yes, we know Republicans would like to pick up the seat from Sanford Bishop. It is more competitive in the new congressional map that was um, passed by the General Assembly, but it's less competitive with the incumbent. It's more competitive in an open seat. All right, Tia Mitchell gets the final word for uh, today's Politically Georgia. Tia, get to work so we can hear from you what's going to happen with this uh, budget resolution. Uh, Andre Gillespie, Charles Bullock, what a pleasure to have both of you on Politically Georgia today. By the way, there is a protest march underway right now. Um, We're told that about 300 people have gathered from around the country to uh, once again it uh, call for a, a stoppage of the construction of the Atlanta Police Training Center. We're watching it unfold today, and certainly the AJC will be reporting on it as the day goes by. And we'll talk about it tomorrow on Politically Georgia. Before we leave you, I want to remind you that if you have a question you'd like us to answer here on Politically Georgia, uh, you can call us on our listener mailbag phone number. Call us at the Georgia Hotline anytime, 24 hours a day at 404-526-AJCP. That's 404-526-2527. That's all the time we have for today's podcast. You can now hear Politically Georgia live on 90.1 WABE weekdays at 10. Or look for Politically Georgia in your favorite podcast app sometime around 1 in the afternoon. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review and share Politically Georgia with a friend. We'll see you again tomorrow at 10 on WABE Atlanta. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. 
And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologeticallyATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Oh, 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 oh